With Capella University's FlexPath learning format, you can earn your degree online at your own pace and get support from people who care about your success. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Addiction plays hardball. He would hit me with these verbal attacks. I just said to him, I love you so much. You're such an amazing person. I can't take this ride anymore. It was the fact that dad made that sentiment and broke down. And years later, he told me it had a huge impact on him. Sometimes doing what's right for your loved one is the hardest thing to do. Karen is that right thing. Visit caron.org slash lost. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show on the Choose Yourself Network. Today on the James Altucher Show. I'm jealous because, Gabe, I wish I had written this book. This is, <laughs> I always think about these things. I always write about these things. This is the book I wish I had written. Thanks. Is that why you wrote it? Yeah, just you're like, jealous. This, <laughs> James would probably write this if I don't write it. I'm going to write I mean, I have a bunch of questions and again, pages folded all over the place, but what's a mental model that you find you regularly use? So there's one called Hanlon's Razor. Hanlon's Razor says, you're offended. You think someone's out to get you or- Oh yeah, I love this one. You know, they're offended you. It's often not intentional and it's usually there just the path of least resistance or carelessness that caused their action. A good example is just like texting, you know, like people write short texts because they're busy or they're not trying to kill themselves or driving or something. Um, and then people take that like, oh, this person's angry at me or, you know, there's something else going on. And what usually happens is then people are accusatory and they're like, why are you upset at me or, you know, or even take a retaliatory action. When Hanlon's Razor would say, okay, probably the right answer is they're just distracted or something. And so instead of taking an accusatory tone, you should take a... Um, inquisitive tone and just say, hey, what's going on? You know, and just ask them about themselves. Right, and, and, and this is related to another one you, you have almost on the same page, the maliciousness effect. You tend to, uh, um, if you do something, you know... Yeah, self-serving bias. Yeah, yeah exactly. If, if you do something, you know that, oh, I was driving and I'm, I, I like this person, I didn't mean anything malicious, but the other person might think, oh my God, this, why is this person so mean now? because they misinterpret everybody assumes the most or people often assume the most malicious explanation exactly. when, they when they should assume the reverse once again back here with Gabriel Weinberg the CEO of the very innovative search engine company DuckDuckGo and the author of one of my new all-time favorite books Super thinking, the big book of mental models. Uh, not only am I glad I read it, I'm also jealous because Gabe, I wish I had written this book. This is, <laughs> I always think about these things. I always write about these things. This is the book I wish I had written. Thanks. Is that why you wrote it? Yeah, just You're to like, make you jealous. <laughs> this, James would probably write this if I don't write it. I'm going to write it. So first, I just want to mention, before we get into what mental models are and how they can make you into smarter, better human being, hopefully, potentially, uh, for those who don't know DuckDuckGo, it's basically the main non-huge competitor of Google. So Google, let's say, I'm just going to make up some numbers. Google, say, has 
90% or nine, between 90 and 95% market share of search engines. Most people think it has like 150%, but it's like 90, 95%. And then there's Bing and then I guess Yahoo and then DuckDuckGo. Yes. So, <laughs> and DuckDuckGo, which Google is so dominant though, that puts DuckDuckGo at about 1%, a little over 1% of the market share. That's correct in the US. And we do about a billion searches a month for scale reference. A billion searches a month. And, uh, uh, the how many searches so like 30 million searches a day 35 million searches a day yeah we have some we're at 40 now and we'll we'll dive a little bit more into how DuckDuckGo works in a little bit i want to talk about the big book of super thinking the big book of mental models first but uh uh the main differentiator like why would anybody go to you is because you uh are very firm about not tracking anyone's data you don't track you have total if someone uses DuckDuckGo, they have total privacy as opposed to Google. Google basically tracks everything I click on, everything I do. Yeah, since we talked last, we've expanded a bit. And you know, if you search on DuckDuckGo, you're anonymous, but then when you click off, now you're on the big bad internet again. And so we developed browser extension and mobile apps to also protect you as you go around the web. So, right, so, so if, I put, if I download the, the Google Chrome, uh, DuckDuckGo uh, extension. Extension. Um, my privacy is still protected. Yeah. So it it in addition to private search, you can block trackers as you go across the web, Google, Facebook, others, and then you get encryption as well. So you know a lot of sites offer an encrypted version, but they don't send you to it automatically. So the extension forces you to go to this encrypted version. You know, um, and and I really do want to spend most of the time on the big book of mental models, and then I do have a couple of questions about DuckDuckGo's business model. But uh, I'm curious if you've heard of this, and this is a, a Google product that I think I'm somehow in a beta program because I've asked everyone else, no one gets these emails that I get. So once a month, I get an email from Google that says, we thought you might like to reminisce about where you've been this past month. And it, it uh, I open it and it takes me to, I see a, a map, a Google map of all the local, and, and there's points on all the locations I've You've been. You've probably been a lot of places. In the, in the past. <laughs> yeah. Not really that many places. And then, and then, um, but, but yeah, if I've traveled internationally, it shows, oh, you've been to London, you've been to New York, you've been to California. But it also, then it has a calendar. And if I click on a day, it'll say at 8.36 a.m., you walked 250 feet to Irving Farm Coffee. Uh, you stayed there till 1.14 p.m. You went back home, which... Is curious. They call it home. I guess that might be the, their Uber link or something. And then, then at at five twelve p.m., you walked two hundred, one hundred fifty feet to stand up New York across the street and stay there for four. So it knows like exactly every place I've been, how I got there, where my home is, the names of all the locations, and I wonder why for a. Do you know about this? Is this, is this like, because I ask a lot of people, nobody has gets these emails. And B, why don't they think that's a little bit creepy? <laughs> I have, I have never heard of this. <laughs> so I, I don't know about the product. I swear to God, I yeah. get it. People don't believe me. I get this email. <laughs> I'll even forward it to you. I'll get, I get this I email you. once a month for, for about six months now. There's, I'm sure they're beta testing. Maybe you are the beta tester. Yeah, um, like the one. <laughs> yeah, I think, I think people in general find the capturing of location history pretty creepy. And they prefer not to have it captured. On the one hand, it's useful, right? It's kind of it's for the aggregation in the in this way, you know. 
Yeah, because, like, yeah, it's creepy that they know that somehow it's like there's eyes on me all the time. But then it was useful for me because I was able to say, oh, I really don't move as much as I should. <laughs> I just walk to these two places most days. Yeah, I think you can get that level of, like, it, comparing to iOS, for example, they don't store as much location history, but they still have lots of health insights. And it's kind of, they do it in a more aggregated way. And so they don't need to store all the detailed location history of you to give you that kind of insight. So, um, all right, you didn't, you've never heard of that one. It, it is creepy. It's one of the reasons why I like using DuckDuckGo whenever, whenever I think of it, whenever I can. Um, but now let's talk for a little bit about Super Thinking, the big book of mental models. Uh, I also, again, want to add your book Traction, which is about how business can grow. It's almost like a very specific set of mental models, if you're an entrepreneur, about all the different ways to think about how a business should grow. And this is based on your personal experience. You sold your first business, Apple then you started DuckDuckGo. What year did you start DuckDuckGo? Uh, 2008. Uh, and by the way, you just got duck.com, right? Google just gave you the URL duck.com. Yes, I've been trying to get that for a long time. Did you pay for it? <laughs> um, we cannot talk about it much. <laughs> All right, secret. Secret stuff between the top search engines. You know, Eric Schmidt was on the podcast. Nice. So, and now the he's retired. You're an actual CEO yes. of a search engine. So let's talk about mental models. I'm going to I'm I'm going to I'm going to move all over the book. Is that okay? okay? Yeah. So an example mental model might be um, opportunity costs. Opportunity costs, right? <laughs> so if you're making a decision, you don't just make a decision about uh, what are the benefits of the decision. You also, you also some costs are things that you're giving up. So if I a very basic example is if I take a job, if my current salary is fifty thousand dollars, and I take a job that's forty thousand dollars. I have an opportunity cost there where I could have made an extra $10,000. So I have to have $10,000 in additional value or more to justify making that decision. Uh, I, I, I folded over so many pages, but, the, but there's like a, a hundred different um, uh, models. And you have also chapter, you kind of divide it up, like which ones could make you uh, potentially uh, better, which ones are useful for uh, uh, decisions, which ones are better for organizations. Um, and there was a lot that I've heard before, but I never really knew the definition of, um, you know, I like, I like the, you also talk a lot about cognitive biases. So like for instance, availability bias, maybe describe that one. Yeah. I mean, it's the idea that when you're going to make a decision or I mean, you're going to do anything, you're most likely to remember information that you just heard or that is present in your mind. But that means that you're not necessarily looking at all the rest of the information that's important to the decision because it's not currently in your mind. Right. So, so, so an example is if we read a bunch of articles about shark attacks, everybody seems to think, oh, shark attacks, uh, shark attacks must be a leading cause of death. Right. Exactly. <laughs> Another good example organizationally is if you do performance reviews for people and it's supposed to be over six months and this person like had a bad incident the week before or a good incident, people generally over or underrate them based on that really recent incident and don't even really look at the past, the real evaluation for the past six months. Yeah, it could be why, like for for Oscars, a lot of movies, a lot of Oscar potential movies like to come out in December because the judges That's tend exactly to remember right. the December <laughs> movies instead of the February movies. Um, how would you use this? No, so so one thing I want to mention with this, uh, with all of these mental models, a lot of them are good for 
decision making and for you to kind of um, improve the way you you think about things, so you can make decisions faster and hopefully better. Uh, some of them, some of these mental models, I think, are a little bit more theoretical and hard to use practically. But like, for instance, this availability bias. How would you use it in a practical setting? Yeah. So we recognizing that you're subject to this bias, then you can like design your decision-making or processes to counteract it and many others. So the review example is a real one from our company. And so as an example, we have a reflection template when we do reviews where the person who is being reviewed as well as the career advisor is explicitly has to go back over the last six months and write down everything that person worked on. And, and that, does that fight it? Yeah, exactly. So that forces you to really like fight the bias, get rid of the bias by at literally systematically, you know, getting in the information that you would not otherwise be thinking about. Let's say, um, I wonder if you can also make use of it in a more kind of insidious way. So, for instance, uh, let's say I'm an employee of a company that's not that doesn't have this reflection template, and my performance review is coming up. Let's say it's a six month performance review. My performance review is coming up in a month. I could suddenly start working 10 hour days yeah. instead of eight hour days, yeah. and they're just going to remember. They're two sided, right? I right. Mean, you can use them to influence. Yeah. Or do you think it works like in sales? Like, let's say um, you're uh, meeting a business and you're trying to sell your product, but you know 10 other companies are trying to sell their, their product, 10 of your competitors. Would you want to meet the person last? Yeah, I, I think that there there is something to that, and part of the idea of learning the biases is to not just overcome for yourself, but understand how you might be being influenced by other people. And then when you see something happen, you're like, oh, I think they're trying to influence me in this bias way. And if you can name it, then maybe you can not be influenced as much. Yeah, like um, so, I was once giving a talk, uh, uh, and this conference was the, the talks were part of a contest. So whoever gave the talk with the most value won this contest and money would go to charity or whatever. And I was the second to last speaker. Uh, Tim Ferriss actually was the last speaker. And so uh, I couldn't quite make a use of availability bias or sometimes called, sometimes called recency bias where I would say, you know, you know, I would basically make use of the fact that I was last. But I a little bit of availability bias is applying, but I also use something called crowd ambiguity bias. So I basically said, Hey, everybody, give it up for all. I, I am the last non-Tim Ferriss speaker. Give it up for all the other prior non-Tim Ferriss speakers. So now I'm kind of trying to seem like I'm the last, and I'm putting um, everybody else in just this ambiguous crowd. And that apparently has a strong mental bias for people. By the yeah, way, neither Tim that. nor I won this contest, <laughs> so I don't know how useful it was. Uh, but... All right, what's another? I mean, I have a bunch of questions, and again, pages folded all over the place. But what's an, uh, a mental model that that you find you regularly use? So I find one that's you know not well known that I use a lot, uh, both personally and professionally, is this notion of a forcing function. And so what it is is something that literally forces you to think critically um, or do something. So it could be as simple as scheduling time and to go to the gym for personal because uh, you're just forced to do it. Um, but on a professional context, like we have meetings where they're, they're pre prescribed meetings for, say, for example, a postmortem after every project, whether it went well or poorly. And we sit there and have an agenda that says, like, what went well, what didn't go well, what can we do better next time? Um, and to give you just some other flavors or examples, 
at the beginning of the week, we have a list of everyone's top priorities. And so everyone has to think about what their priority is for the week. And so this is when you when you say you're using uh, this forcing mechanism, it's it's scheduled. They have to do yeah, this. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Kind of mandatory pre-scheduled things. And there are moments where it's forcing you to think critically about your work or your project or whatnot. And if you don't have these, um, you know, you can kind of just go adrift for long periods of time without thinking critically, and then kind of wake up and realize you wasted a lot of time. You know, you know what uh, you know what I like about this forcing. What do you call it? Forcing forcing function. Forcing function. I I have used this to basically put in my calendar downtime. Yes. <laughs> Otherwise, I tend to fill up my calendar with like meetings and calls and podcasts and things to do, and it's important to kind of rest every now and then. Yeah, a lot of them work together. So like there's these other concepts of like deep work um, from like Hal Newport's book. Right. And, you know, it's basically saying that to solve really hard problems, you actually need to set set aside time to work on them, which is hard to do. And so a forcing function for that is to literally schedule these deep work blocks into your calendar. I noticed you um, you mentioned in the book you don't uh, have meetings on Wednesdays and Thursdays. Exactly. So do you stick to that? Like what if... Uh, some really important thing happens and you're like, oh my God, I got to wait till Friday. So our, our adjustment has been no standing meetings. So any of these weekly sync up meetings or biweekly or monthly, those cannot be scheduled on, on, on Wednesday and Thursday. So by default, the calendar is clear on those days. Other things could get scheduled there, you know, but, but they start clear every week at least. Okay, I get it. It's funny when you when you wrote standing. I saw that when you wrote standing meetings in the book, and I was wondering, like, are all his meetings standing up? Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, that was uh, probably uh, not not as well written there. <laughs> um, so I'm really fascinated by the Dunning Kruger effect, which is the idea that you know the learning for for any endeavor that is worth learning, and if you're learning it well with and and you mentioned the the Anders Ericsson's ten thousand hour rule and his notion of deliberate practice. So if you're if you're moving up a steep learning curve, like let's say playing the violin or playing chess or something like that, there's this tendency when you're moving fat, when you're accelerating up the learning curve, uh, to think you're an expert, even if you're not. And we know a, a lot of people who have it, and it's usually considered a negative effect because you, again, there's, there's, if you think you're a better driver than you are, you can get into a, an accident. Um, I actually like the Dunning-Kruger effect because let's say you're doing something like writing a novel Initially, when you start writing, you're going to suck no matter what. And the only thing that kind of gets you through the several-year process of sucking, and and it will be a several-year process because anything worth learning, you're going to suck at for years. The only way for me to get through that is to have the overconfidence of the Dunning-Kruger effect. That's interesting. Yeah, I mean, so as you mentioned, these are all grouped into kind of themes, right? And so this whole theme in this chapter is about unlocking people's potential and I, I like that approach. I, I think I probably also have that kind of unbridled optimism for. Well, things. I think probably everyone knows. <laughs> yeah. Like, like take Elon Musk. Exactly. The guy thought he could build you have to, to rocket like, ships to that. space, and he didn't know anything. So you have to think you're an expert to 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 get out of your comfort zone. So I look at some of these and that one in particular as like if you want to coach people and unlock people's potential, you want to get them on this deliberate practice train on whatever skills they want to develop. But then you also have to be aware of these psychological models that they can befall them. And so Dunning-Kruger is one of them. And then the the right kind of after the Dunning-Kruger effect, people take a a huge nosedive into their confidence and they can feel imposter syndrome. 
And so you kind of need to be aware as the coach or expert that people are going to go through this and help them kind of navigate it. Because, you know, some people like yourself or, or myself for start the company can kind of push through that Dunning-Kruger effect, the after trough thing. But a lot of people just quit at that point. Or or if you're an investor and you have a Dunning-Kruger effect, you could lose all your money. Yeah, exactly. So that's the that's really the, the has been the downside for me on occasion of the Dunning-Kruger effect. Uh, as I as I was beginning investing in the '90s and '00s, but uh, I think you're right. I think people. It's almost good to have an accountability partner, or or if you're if you're learning something uh, uh, with Anders, you know, using Anders Ericsson's deliberate practice, you need a coach anyway, and they should be aware of like the stunning Kruger effect and the imposter syndrome and and so on. Yeah, exactly. That can be in a professional context, and in, in that context too, one of the issues with stunning Kruger effect is people who do think they're overconfident, you know think they're better than their peers, they want to be promoted, and it's not necessarily true given their output. And so there's a almost reality feedback loop that, you know, the coach really needs to convey or else, you know, they have to break through to that reality of that person. It's hard. Like I've if, without a coach, I've had the Dunning-Kruger effect so big that really it's caused like massive life changes for me. Like, oh, I'm an expert at this. I'll do this and then and I and I just don't believe reality. Dunning Kruger effect is really strong. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I I think to to your other point about um, deliberate practice is like having that coach is critical. Who like is already past that cycle and then can tell you, like, try to put some reality into. Maybe they can't in all cases. Maybe like you said, your distortion field is so large <laughs> that you're not going to listen to anybody. But I think that's key. It's also key to learning faster because you yeah. need the feedback process. And, and again, I think. Um, awareness is the, always the first step. So aware awareness that this sort of bias exists in the brain for whatever evolutionary reason, just knowing when you start to think, oh, I'm really good now, start being aware that this bias exists is important w with or without a coach, but it helps to yeah. have the coach. That's the hope for the, that's really the hope for the book in general and mental models, uh, I think are, are, are most useful is to put names to things so that they pop into your head at the right time. And otherwise, if you don't have the name for it, it's really hard to convey the concept to yourself or others. Like the the way the way I kind of uh, make use of of some of these things is, if the domain is high stakes, uh, like let's say uh, investing is high stakes, you could you 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 can win or lose your your hard earned money. Uh, I always remember to tell myself I am by far the stupidest person in the room. I have to really work hard to remind myself of that. If the state, if the stakes are not uh, that high, like let's say I'm learning the violin, I'm not a professional violin play player. It's, it, it kind of, it, I don't, I don't care as much because I, I love seeing the improvement and I love thinking I'm an expert. So, it'll, it, and I love doing what I'm an expert at. So it kind of increases my passion and, and drive to do put in more hours. Yeah, I like, I like that. There's a. There's a model uh, reversible versus irreversible decisions, and it's it's basically saying that a lot of things you do in life are reversible. Like you you know you can walk back through a door is the metaphor, but then there are some things like you said investing where it's irreversible. You know you put the money down, you're going to lose it. Um, and the more irreversible and consequential it is, the more you want to slow down and apply some of these things. And the more reversible or inconsequential, you know, just have fun. You know, it, it uh, this makes me think of some of your, your, your final chapter where you talk about these two by two matrices in terms of making decisions. And, uh, there, that was a, a mind blowing chapter cause it made me understand a couple of things I'll describe in a second. But 
in in this sense, you can you whether the Dunning Kruger effect is positive or not. You could think of one side of the matrix is reversible, irreversible, and the other side is the other axis is uh, low stakes, high stakes. And so, like, l- let's say um, you're single and you're you know in this period where you're asking girls out, asking asking a woman out is an irreversible thing. You can't unask her out, but it's maybe lower stakes because if you're at, there's a lot of fish in the sea. So then that, that helps you kind of decide, oh, if this is high stakes, like losing all of your money, you know, making one investment with all your money and it's irreversible, then the Dunning-Kruger, let see if the Dunning-Kruger effect is kicking in. Else it's okay, you know, don't worry as much about it. Yeah, exactly. And it helps you guide you how long you should take to make the decision. You know, if something's low consequence, um, you know, it, you can make it quickly. If it's, and you don't want to get trapped in the analysis paralysis kind of thing. But if it's high consequence, you probably do want to slow down and actually have an effective decision making process. So, so, and this, this, this brings me to actually when you were talking about the two by two matrices. I I never understood this the the Nash equilibrium which is named after John Nash the, the movie A Beautiful Mind based on John Nash uh you know which is basically it's a 2 by 2 matrix where uh I don't know how to quite describe it on a podcast without drawing it out <laughs> but basically the Nash equilibrium is a decision you make that's not the most satisfying but is the most likely to happen so you might as well make that this you don't want to risk uh, a a worse outcome, making a better decision. So you make a mediocre decision to get the most likely outcome that's not as bad as the worst decision. And 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 it's basically in every field or in many fields, there's this Nash equilibrium. So you kind of want to decide if if the area you're making a decision in has this equilibrium, and and that helps you uh, make the decision that goes to that equ- the equilibrium, the most likely outcome. Yeah, it's a. Uh, it, it rises a lot in conflict situations or just any situation where there are other people making decisions in the same space that you are. Um, and so the what you want to see if the national equilibrium exists is because you know that's the likely outcome if everyone makes the decisions. Now, usually you can get a better outcome if everyone cooperates and you can make these deals in a way that people aren't going to kind of cheat. Um, and so the canonical example is the prisoner's dilemma, which I think a lot of people know. Um, but where, let's tell, tell me like a real world example, like, uh, you know, because for instance, this is, this is, uh, uh, ramifications in politics, yeah. which is why people get all so cartels, polarized. All, like, so like the oil cartels or, um, arms, you know, arms deals are all fall into the, exactly the same prisoner's dilemma thing. And it's kind of like, say you have an agreement, um, which has been many in history to, you know, to reduce arms. So it's like the U S and Russia. Um, there is a uh, tendency that I mean that's a, that's the best agreement for everybody. You know, arms are reduced. Right. If, if so, if, so if both sides uh, agree uh, to reduce arms and they go ahead and do that, that's the best outcome. But in a situation like in the Cold War, U- U.S. versus U.S.S.R., uh, neither side was necessarily agreeing to. They would agree right. to cooperate. It's not the national equilibrium because let's say you're in that situation where you agreed. To this arms thing, it's the if you anyone cheats, it's better off for them because if you cheat and start making arms, then you're better off than the country who didn't make arms because now if you go to war with them, you all of a sudden have a huge advantage. 
And so the and this gets worse every time you add another player. So if you add three players, you know, four players, they're seeing the advantage of them cheating. And so it's a very unstable equilibrium. And because the real equilibrium is everybody, you know, invests in arms, which is what generally happens. And that's a terrible, it's like it's not the worst outcome to your point, which would be like annihilation of everybody. But it's not good because then everyone's spending a lot of their resources on making arms when they could be spending it, you know, on feeding their people or other things. Well, but that, that's a good point because let's say, like in the in the arms race as an example, um, they reach this Nash equilibrium, which is not really a pleasant decision, but it, it basically means both sides have to build as many weapons as possible as quickly as possible. It sort of suggests if you if you just if you realize, oh. I'm falling into a Nash equilibrium decision, it kind of forces other decisions, which is I better make sure all the other areas of my life or my country or whatever are being optimized. So the US in this sense, in this case, uh, focused on economic development. So whereas the USSR wasn't able to uh, focus as much, so this Nash equilibrium fell apart in yeah, you could almost argue. I mean, it was their downfall, you know, because they spent so much on yeah. nuclear. The re- I mean, and the rest of the arms race that everything else fell apart. So, what would be an equivalent, let's say, in business or sales? Like, let's say you're competing against Pat- um, another direct example of this is like patent warfare. So, these large companies just filing patents and spending tons of their time filing patents. The biggest companies literally have like tens of thousands of patents on the most ridiculous things. And it's all for them to accumulate in case, you know, they get into this patent war with another company. And so that it's a, it's a, it's a, it stops the mutually assured destruction, which would be the other model that comes from, you know, um, nuclear arms races. I see. So if you have, if you have a patent that you really care about and someone else feels they have a similar or is breaking your patent, both sides' goal is to get as many patents as possible. So if 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 you sue them, they can say, oh no, I have, we have 50 other patents yeah. that I can sue you with, you know? And so if you don't have any patents, now you're totally kind of screwed because, you know, now all sorts of companies come after you. So your goal is just to just file patents all the time. So 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 then recognizing you're in a Nash equilibrium there, you can say, well, okay, I'm also going to focus on building my brand. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Or the equivalent of the arms agreement is, you know, there are these consortiums of everyone's going to put their patents into one area and we're all going to license them to each other and, you know, and, and agree we're not going to fight each other. And that's generally what happens. You don't see a lot of patent wars. You see a lot of people filing patents, but you don't see a lot of lawsuits between these big companies about patents. It's very rare. So very expensive to, to really fight it all the way to. Yeah, but it does happen. So, so, uh, I'm also curious, and again, I'm going popping all over the place, but I just love all of these different, you know, these mental models. I like this mental model that you call the default effect, which, which is kind of like an umbrella over all of them, which is in every category of thinking or reaching your potential or decision-making, uh, find a default bias or find 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 a bias that works for this situation and use that, just default to that, as opposed to really thinking too hard about the situation. These biases are a way to almost avoid expending too much energy when making a decision. It's like, oh, okay, I'm gonna use these persuasion, these six persuasion techniques here, instead of trying to figure out how to persuade Gabe to do something. Or, uh, you know, actually, let's talk about one of the most famous biases for a second, confirmation bias. So this is the, the, maybe explain it and then I have some questions about it. Yeah, I mean, the, the idea is, is once you make a decision, 
and it's kind of like confirming your thoughts on that topic is where the name comes from. You're much more likely to agree with anything related to that decision you previously made. <laughs> and so to the extent that when you see you know, evidence towards that decision you already made, you go towards that evidence and you ignore other evidence. You're no longer fair, effectively, because you don't want to, if, if you were to change your mind, so to speak, or or question your decision, now you're questioning your identity and your own ego and things like that. So, so, so an example might be, if you went to college, you'll, uh, which most people have, you'll probably ignore or discount any evidence that suggests college might not be that significant. People who go to college might have not have a significant advantage over people who didn't go to college. Exactly. And part of the reason is, is another model called cognitive dissonance, where when you have two opposing views in your head, it, it literally causes you physical pain in your brain. And it's hard to coordinate those things going on. And so to avoid that pain, people just, just try to stick to their decisions. So, so like for instance, in, in this case, if someone shows you, uh, and I'm just making this up, but there's probably no bulletproof evidence like this, but if someone shows you bulletproof statistical evidence that not going to college has, has no disadvantage to those going to college and, and you believe their evidence, you'll feel some kind of pain. How do you resolve, how do most people resolve cognitive dissonance? Um, by ignoring the <laughs> the new evidence. And in fact, there's there's something amazing effect called the backfire effect where actually preventing like incontrovertible evidence often has the opposite effect to people who already have the decision. And they, they get more ingrained in their decision and they, they think like conspiracy theories about why that evidence is, is incorrect. Yeah, it I, actually I, emboldens them. Yes, it's totally true. Airbnb has changed my life. If anything, they have made my life so much better. Like I used to live in Airbnbs. I, I lived in over 100 or 200 different Airbnbs over a three-year period, and I loved it. I, loved, I became a really good guest of Airbnbs, and I got to know lots of hosts. So when I initially owned a house, I, of course, the first thing I thought was, I'm going to turn my house into an Airbnb because I travel a lot. So why leave my house unused when I can make a side income by letting others Airbnb my house or come to stay in my house as guests? And having my own Airbnb or, or being a host for Airbnb has allowed me to do just that. And I've met other hosts. I've actually spoken at Airbnb's host conference. I think it was in 2017. I met so many just nice hosts. It's a great community. And I love, you know, turning my own home into an Airbnb. Like I'm traveling to Austin next month. My home's going to be an Airbnb while I'm away. And I'll stay in an Airbnb. I'd rather stay in like a three story house Airbnb than in one tiny hotel room in, in the middle of Austin during South by Southwest. So listen, while you're away, your home could be an Airbnb. Many people host on Airbnb, but there are people who are just letting their house sit empty, who've never thought about it or didn't realize their space could be an Airbnb. Hosting can easily fit into your lifestyle and is a great way to earn some extra money. So if you have a home, but you're not always at home, then you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Daylight savings time is starting up again. 
okay, podcast is over. That's all you needed to know. But why do we have uh, daylight savings time? Answer, to give us more daylight from March through November. By setting your clocks forward, it may feel like there are more hours in the day that initial, when we initially start daylight savings. But if you're hiring, it doesn't necessarily help you find qualified candidates for your roles any sooner. There's only one way to do that, ZipRecruiter. And right now you can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter works around the clock to find qualified candidates for you. Once you post your job on ZipRecruiter, they send it to 100-plus job sites so you reach more of the right people. This is such a brilliant idea for a business, and ZipRecruiter did it. So ZipRecruiter's smart technology also quickly scans thousands of resumes to identify people whose skills and experience match your job. I've used ZipRecruiter particularly as a potential employee, and I still, to this day, get messages every day. James Aldacher, would you like to apply to be... VP of entertainment at NBC or whatever. So there's just nonstop emails. Like I got five or six emails today because of because a year ago I signed up for ZipRecruiter. So spring forward with a new hiring partner, ZipRecruiter, and find top talent sooner. See why four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to this exclusive web address to try ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Once again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools. It's funny because I saw this about a week or so ago. I wrote something about vaccines and I didn't really, I mean, I'm pro-vaccine, but, uh, there was, I didn't realize how many people were anti-vaccine into the, yeah, <laughs> or the, so, vocal, the and, vocalness and so, of them. And so I kind of stopped commenting, but this thread got up to just on my Facebook wall, this thread got up to 600 comments and it was pro-vaccine versus anti-vaccines. And both sides kept going deeper and deeper into their search engines to find evidence. And then once evidence was presented, people would either ignore it or, find, you know, research the authors of the other evidence to say, oh no, those guys are in jail. You know, there was, nobody was accepting the others. Nobody basically said, oh, you're, you know, you're right. I thank you for showing <laughs> yeah. me that article. That never once happened out of the 600 comments. Yeah, and, 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 and it, it probably had the backfire effect where just people got angrier and angrier and more entrenched in their position. Right, well, well, for, for me even too, because I started researching and so I started convincing myself of more and more evidence of things that I really had no knowledge about. Uh, but, but also then, um, I like how you frame, uh, you have, you have some mental models for framing this direction that arguments often take. So one way to resolve, uh, cognitive dissonance in an argument is people use, if they can't handle the pain, they use what you call and describe as a, a straw man type of attack. So it's almost like they're, they're widening the circle of the argument. So if you don't believe this, you must be a, a bad, you know, 
researcher or you know you're you don't know anything or you don't you're not sensitive to kids or whatever like or you give an example about parenting like um of some a parent might say to a kid you know you you really should do this and the kid not wanting to do it might say oh you're too strict a parent so he's widening the argument making it a little bit more difficult to argue yeah people are constantly talking past each other in those like environments i mean in terms of overcoming confirmation bias there's kind of a there's kind of two techniques i often like to use one comes from annie duke who wrote a book thinking in bats yeah she is a great book she's been on the podcast yeah love that book she, she she's got a good technique which is basically i mean this is for you to use personally to overcome it but never commit to 100 percent on anything so you're basically mm. tricking yourself not to be confirmed in the confirmation bias and you say Hey, look, I'm 99% on this. I'm I'm pretty sure this is the answer, but I'm not 100% sure, so it never becomes part of my identity, and I'm willing to like still see information against it. Yeah, I I like that. That's uh, I I like the kind of mathematical way of thinking about it. My my own technique uh, is either saying, like I said before, like I'm the stupidest person in the room, but that's not always useful because then I'm also too easily swayed if I always am saying that to myself. Uh, the other thing is to always, to, to no matter what the argument is, to remind myself that it's okay to admit that I'm wrong. Like yeah, you just have, being aware of the bias, one. like you just have to remind yourself that I might be wrong. And then communicate with other people. I mean, I think you have to figure out whether they're open to change or not. If they're not, it probably is not worth the discussion. But if they are, like the technique that I like is. Uh, when, when people are talking past each other, they're literally talking about different premises in the argument. And so I like to literally try to write down or communicate to somebody, okay, what are we actually disagreeing about? What is the fact that you think is incorrect? Let's just like start at the basic level and just talk about that and resolve it. And either agree to ultimately agree to disagree or actually one of us decides that, you know, I, I was wrong about that or I didn't know about that. So, so that's a very healthy reaction to... If someone like let's say uses a straw man and says, "Oh, you're a strict parent," if you're the parent, you could say, "Hey, maybe I am, maybe yeah, I'm not." Yeah, let's hold that to the side for the moment. Yeah, but let's uh, not change the subject. Let's just focus on whether this is this, you go going out late at night to a party tomorrow is good or bad for you, and and then we'll decide. Um, so it's very rational. I find again with with people who are experiencing a lot of cognitive dissonance, including myself, they might just ignore that. Yeah, it may not work. In which case, if you're in one of those situations and someone's emotionally already kind of overcome by these biases, I, I honestly don't think there's much you can do rationally. Well, You could again, try to use irrational things, you know, some of these other biases, but at that point, you're like, you're doing this influence thing and you're not really convincing them, you know? It's like, you almost need to like, just come back at another time when they're in a more rational space. Yeah, and particularly with it's like, when it's like conspiracy theory. So a after this thread happened, I called a friend of mine who writes books about conspiracy theorists. And his view is basically f facts never work. They're never going to change their mind. And, uh, and it's interesting, he said the biggest correlation, um, the biggest thing that correlates people who believe in conspiracy theories, any conspiracy theory, is that they believe in at least other conspiracy theories because they, they basically lose trust for everything. And that's ultimately the the uh, co confirmation bias that you have to overcome is that you, you can't possibly restore uh, um, trust in whatever they lost trust in. Like, Yeah, I mean, that's a good point. I mean, like we wrote this whole chapter on statistics and numbers, and that that is effectively our central point, which is, 
you know, there's the whole notion, I think the chapter's actually named Lies, Damn Lies, and Statistics, that you can make up numbers for everything. But if you believe that, then you throw out all facts in the universe, and then you can never convince anybody of anything. And so the real answer is some facts are true facts, and some numbers are more real than others, and you have to know the mental models to help distinguish between kind of the the fake stuff and the good stuff. Yeah, like it's an art form to kind of look at a, at statistical research and say, oh no, there's a statistical flaw here. And you deal with that a little bit. Like you, there's some biases that happen in statistics like survivorship bias, uh, selection bias, there's other biases. I won't, I won't get, go into all those, but you explain them so simply and succinctly. They, they Without any knowledge of statistics, they can help people form their arguments better like understanding survivorship, just those two biases, survivorship bias and selection bias. Yeah, those are the biggest ones. So an example of survivorship bias might be... Um, uh, you know, uh, lo looking at looking at a, a very common one is looking at entrepreneurs who dropped out of college and oh, yeah. who are billionaires now <laughs> and saying that, you know, I should drop out of college and I'll become a billionaire. Um, you're not looking at all the other people who say dropped out and did not become a billionaire. Yeah, or went broke or whatever. Yeah, exactly. Uh, what if someone told you, um, Gabe, you know, I know you're really against the, uh, I know you're really for super strict rules on privacy for websites, but you know, that's not really good for society, for people, for businesses. Uh, I think you should change your view on that. <laughs> you probably would have some sort of, confirmation bias uh there but I, i'd have to present evidence somehow but yeah i mean would fight it. <laughs> it it is i mean it, it's a really good point it's like you can't just knowing about it doesn't immediately escape your kind of human reaction to these things well in fact like Dan daniel kahneman who wrote thinking fast and slow and who was the nobel prize winning economist who came up with confirmation bias and a lot of these biases uh he is he's really firm that there is even if you know everything about these biases, there's absolutely no way to overcome them. I mean, I think there. I think his. I take away from his work that, um, and which we reference, is that if you're in that, so he's got the system one versus the system two thinking, the fast intuition versus the slow. If you're in the fast thinking in the intuition area, yeah, there's just nothing you can do. I mean, because that's is your intuition. Are these biases? That's why they're fast. Um, you have to slow down. Um, even if you slow down, you can be subject to these, but the more methodical you are, and the other kind of implicit point here is the more you involve other people to call you on your BS, um, you can start to overcome these things. And and I guess, you know, maybe kind of in the middle uh, between what, you're, what you just said and what Kahneman says is that there's only so many areas, you're going to have confirmation bias uh, essentially on all of your opinions that you've built up over your life. And there's only, there's only so many areas where you're able, you're going to be able to, or even want to slow down. So for instance, if you're very religious and you're, and you have a pro-life stance, you're not going to really care that there's confirmation bias in your arguments and in your opinions, because it's for you also, it's related to your religion and how you grew up and, and so on. So some things you're just not going to even want to resist the confirmation bias. Yeah. I mean, I, I mean, if you were doing it all the time, it would be pretty exhausting. Um, I think there's like a there's like a degree to which it becomes part of your identity. So there's like a degree of confirmation bias. Like if you believe you're like 
your identity is, you know, is the privacy guy or is the podcast person and someone is telling you something different about what you perceive your identity to be, you're much more likely to succumb to confirmation bias than if it's something that, you know, it's a passing decision you made 20 years ago. It's not really part of your life. You know, you might be more willing to change your mind on that one. Right. So, so, um, so it's kind of like important, again, awareness is the key. And it's almost like you say, you can say, look, do I really care that I have confirmation bias here? Ah, no, nah, I'm going to believe this anyway, no matter what evidence has shown me, because I just believe it. It's one of my beliefs. Exactly. And- I do think your point about, your meta point of self-awareness is, is the key. You're kind of like thinking about yourself. You're thinking about what models apply in this situation. You're kind of taking a step up from the situation, right? And you're thinking about what's going on with it. So, so um, another area, uh, I always like models of persuasion and influence, and Robert Cialdini, who you reference in the book, has been on the podcast to talk about his book's influence and persuasion. Um, you provide a really great summary of the models of uh, the principles of, of influence that he describes. Uh, and I again, I wonder, you give very concrete examples about how each principle can be used, like reciprocity, social proof, authority, uh, commitment. And I wonder, um, it, like how often do you think to yourself, okay, I'm going to use one of these principles of influence to influence somebody. Cause I, cause I think they, they, there's great examples and I wonder how often people really think in advance or that the examples work to fit the model. Yeah. It's interesting. I mean, so there, there's, there's a meta question of like, how ethical they are in different situations that I personally struggle with. Like if you know something is an influence model, but it's not a rational one. And we reference this in, in the book. It's like nonprofits use these all the time for good causes. Um, but you know, if you were gonna get someone to donate that they weren't they, they were probably gonna donate, but you influence them a little bit, is that bad? Versus if you're, you know, a casino, which we also reference using all these at once to really trick people out of their money, it seems like it crosses some line. So there's some question I have in general on a case-by-case basis of like how kind of ethical it is to kind of drill down into them. But I'd say where it comes up a lot is in marketing. So we're constantly marketing for the search engine. I advise a lot of companies in marketing because I think I wrote this other book on marketing. And a lot of that, a lot of marketing is not, you're not just making the rational point. You're using emotion in some way or these influence models in your ad to try to get people to do things. Right, like when you when you tweet out, um, you know, 10 billion uh, searches yeah, done with DuckDuckGo. Like, that's a big number. That, you have no context for that number, right. right? But it sounds like a really big number. And it's social proof yeah. in the sense that I might think, to, I might see that, I might think to myself, oh, well, if 10 billion people, I'll, I'll, I'll immediately re- replace visits with or searches with people. If 10 billion people are using uh, DuckDuckGo, I, I should try it, I should look at it. So, so you're using social proof there. Exactly. Uh, but, you know, yeah, but, then, yeah. but then I'm wondering, then later on in the book, you have the broken windows mental model, which is this idea that, um, and this is what Giuliani supposedly used to clean up crime in New York City in the 90s. If you see, you basically don't allow any broken windows. If you, if you see a, a, a broken window in a car, chances are the car across the street within the next week or so is going to also have a broken window. Like someone will sm- break into that car too. And, uh, and that's a, almost a weird example of social proof is that if someone sees, um, uh, oh, people are breaking windows in this neighborhood on cars and breaking into cars, I could do it too. It's almost like there, and you, you say the broken window theory might not really 
work that well. I'm wondering how that conflicts with social proof. Yeah, just to be clear, in crime, I think it's been somewhat discredited, but I think it does relate to this other concept, back to the vaccines, called herd immunity, where um, basically for the vaccine idea is you need a certain number of people vaccinated in a community or else you get outbreaks. And so with really contagious diseases like measles, the number is 95%. So like that's really high. So as soon as you get less than 95%, you start getting an outbreak, which is what we're seeing. I, that happens, again, to use a company example, because it's top of mind, in company processes all the time, like if you, or, or your house, if, it, if you want it to be clean. So like in our company, you know, all projects are supposed to be organized in a certain way. But if certain people, or some people just stop organizing it well, then all of a sudden that's social proof to your point. And people are looking at, well, if that person's not organizing, I don't have to organize. And then all of a sudden it just descends into chaos. And so you need to have some threshold amount to keep it above that kind of vaccination, uh, herd immunity amount, or else you risk this chaotic state. So so, so for every domain, there's some number where social proof will start to occur and below that number, social proof won't. Yeah, or, it's, or it's whatever smart. I didn't connect it to social proof before, but I think that's the underlying mechanism. Yeah, because... I'm looking at you doing it and I'm copying you and that's the social proof I have. So so like, like another great example is voting. So, you know, uh, up, if nobody votes, right, a political system falls apart. But there's probably some percent, like obviously not a great, you know, I don't know what the percentage is of in the U.S. that people vote for a president. Let's say it's uh, around, I don't know, 50%. I roughly. think it was like that. But the, you, your point here is really valid because like arguably the percentage of people who vote in primaries is too low and the primary voters are not representative of the rest of the population and they're creating the you know the election general candidates and in a way that's not good you know historically right so it's almost like they're, like the threshold has been lower you know like and it's not enough social people. proof that you need to vote in primaries yeah. somehow so so i don't know not enough could... media coverage there's not enough just like you know just isn't out there as much it's not on all one day but that and so that can suggest that um, you need some of these other areas of influence, like authority. So some major figure you see, you, you see them voting, or they go on get out the vote campaigns. Um, it gets to your like default effect and easier things. It's like in this example, voting's too complicated. You can't. You have to show up at a certain place at a certain time. Right. So that's you why campaigns and buses to yeah. pick people up at retirement homes. Hey, all. Everybody come out and vote or whatever. Like some states are doing vote by mail now, which is much easier. Um, if you kind of reduce the cost of voting, you could increase, you know, the turnout. Or or use reciprocity, which is one of those influence techniques, like provide people a bus. Yeah, exactly. So, so or or get people to commit earlier. Like if um I, I wonder like literally like a lot of the reciprocity things that work really well is you, you just give someone a gift, you know, like the um nonprofits mail you these address labels and then you start using them and you're like, oh, I should probably donate to this place. Or or on a subway, a deaf person hands you a yeah, exactly. sign language card. So I, I wonder if, if the government literally just mailed people a dollar and said, thank you for voting and like a week before if more people would show up. Oh yeah, probably. I, yeah. Wonder, if, I wonder how legal that is. <laughs> Jay, what time is it? Because I want to uh, make sure. 11. And you're, I, I want to be respectful of your time so I got to kind of select. I wanted, I want to actually, to, I wanted to ask you about the 10X so, so most people are on, I don't want to get too statistical. Uh, let me back up. Some employees are 10 times better than other employees. And some violinists are 10 times better than other violinists. And 
those are like to be 10 times better than anyone else is like a statistical outlier normally if you're you depending on how you're modeling yeah, your statistics definitely. it's it's like what Nassim Taleb would call a black swan effect like some some uh something that you don't expect by normal statistical models but there it exists i kind of think uh some areas like let's say computer programming has several layers of 10x so let's say the average employee is a mediocre programmer um, and everybody, it, it, it's not like there's going to be people 50% or two times better than an employee. Everyone's going to, everyone near in skill or ability to that programmer is going to sort of be roughly 10 to 20% different. But then suddenly you'll get a 10x person who has 10x the ability. And the same thing will happen around that person. And then I think it even goes further. I think there's, there's, you know, increasing levels of 10x rather than just two levels. Have you, have you noticed that? I have noticed that, um, and after working with lots of people over the years, um, the challenge with it, as we point out, is it's really hard to find and recruit a team of those 10x people, <laughs> and and people waste a lot of their time trying to do that. Where if you, even though people might be at the mediocre level, if you give them anything, um, the belief is that since people are different, there actually are some things that person can do relatively exceptionally if you arrange it kind of the right way. Hmm. Um, and that's where this 10x team concept comes in. So if you have a project, you there are some projects, like you said, if the person's 100x, like you, you just put that person in a room and they just do it all themselves. But most things in most companies are not that way. You're going to have a group of people uh, doing it. And so if you have a project and you have a diverse group of people and you can pick from that diverse group the right people for that project, you can have vastly different outcomes for that project depending on which people you pick. And and I think also let's let's say, let's say I'm reading this, but I'm not uh, managing an organization or a company. It's it's useful personally to say, okay, well, what can I be 10x at? Exactly. So, what area of life do I have enough ability and and interest and passion so I can keep learning that I can be 10x the average kind of money making person in this domain and it relates to not just your skills but also your personality your motivations you know you said like passion because it's like you know a person who is not necessarily the smartest who is extremely motivated and passionate about a particular area and has the exact personality for it can actually do you know all these things are kind of multiplying you know right like you were in the beginning of the book you're making a decision whether to be a venture capitalist or an entrepreneur and uh, ultimately you decided some of the skills required for being a venture capitalist, which aren't that obvious. Like you have to be basically an extreme extrovert, I think, to be a good venture capitalist because you have to socialize and meet yeah. people. and Like traveling, don't you, get headaches very easily. <laughs> you, I, it, so I was a venture capitalist for yeah. a little while and it was a nightmare. Because <laughs> yeah. if, you, if you're, you got to go to conferences, you got to vacation with potential entrepreneurs that you want to invest in so you get to really know them like it's, it's all sorts of extrovert things you have to do that i was not aware of and me neither exactly it's so, <laughs> much so so you just so that's how you decide okay well it's much easier it's gonna be much easier for me to be a 10x the entrepreneur than 10x uh vc right exactly and in a in a i would not be a 10x venture capitalist and you know you're you can probably find things given your personality of which you could excel on uh so Let's let's hit like what what again. I have so many pages folded over. What are one or two biases that you use even on a daily basis that you mention in here that uh, you think are you know how do you use them? How would you describe them? How would you use them? 
Unless- so there's one um, in the beginning called Hanlon's Razor, which is kind of like Occ- Occam's Razor people are more familiar with, like the simplest explanation, usually the true one. Um, as applied to people and their kind of motivations, Hanlon's Razor says, you know, when something happens, um, and often in a negative context, like you're offended, you think someone's out to get you, or oh yeah, I love you, this one. You know, they're offending at you, uh, offended you. Um, it's often not intentional, and it's usually there just the path of least resistance or carelessness that caused their action. Uh, a good example is just like texting. You know, like people write short texts because they're busy or they're not trying to kill themselves when driving or something. Um, and then people take that like, oh, this person's angry at me, or you know, there's something else going on, and what usually happens is then people are accusatory and they're like, why are you upset at me? Or, you know, or, or even take a retaliatory action when Hanlon's razor would say, okay, probably the right answer is they're just distracted or something. And so instead of taking an accusatory tone, you should take a, um, inquisitive tone and just say, Hey, what's going on? You know, and just ask them about themselves. Right. And, and uh, this is related to another one. You, you have almost on the same page, the maliciousness effect. You tend to, uh, um, if somebody does something to if you do something, you know. Yeah, self-serving bias. Yeah, yeah exactly. If, if you do something, you know that, oh, I was driving and I'm, I I like this person. I didn't mean anything malicious. But, uh, but the other person might think, oh, my God, this, why is this person so mean now? Like, you know, because they don't, because they misinterpret. Everybody assumes the most, or people often assume the most malicious explanation. Exactly. When they, should, when they should assume the reverse. There's a tactical kind of model to help with this called, most respectful interpretation, where mm. you just strive effectively giving people the benefit of the doubt, but you 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 try to give people the most respectful interpretation of whatever they're doing. And so, if they write you something, and you you're the most respectful interpretation, maybe they're just distracted or they're they they got involved with something else. Um, and you start with that, and it sounds naive, but it is not saying that you have to keep that forever. Like you just start with it, right? Because even if you're wrong, your actions that proceed from that are probably the best actions you exactly. take anyway. You just build, it's a build, thing that builds trust no matter what. So it's the right starting point pretty much in any situation. And so like that being your default, back to the default thing, is that's so it's one of these values that we try to push at the company too. Like, because we're a distributed company and so we are writing texts all the time. People are in different time zones. So this is like a constant thing that's happening. You know, like people making comments and then people taking it the wrong way. And so we have it built in that it's like, you, you need to use the most respectful interpretation all the time. And so, okay, so what's another? I, I like that one a lot. Uh, what? And and by the way, I'm horrible at this one. That one, the, <laughs> I always am paranoid um, and usually right. But it, nevertheless, it helps to take the most respectful attitude anyway, even if you're paranoid and correct. Uh, but uh, what's another one that you use? So another one I like a lot. I mentioned we do postmortems a lot, which is. You know, basically examining whether anything went well or didn't go well or how it got better. A technique used in postmortems is this model called five whys, where you're trying to get to the root cause of a problem, not just what they call the surface cause or proximal cause. Actually, I referenced you multiple times on this um, because I have so many problems. <laughs> yeah, no, no. Because I remember it was like a podcast of yours I listened to, and it was like maybe it was several. You have to remind me where it came from, but it's like the the reason someone says they do something, and then like the real reason. Right, right, yeah. So, so that, that's uh, a good way. To always, put it. The, if someone says something to you, let's say in a medium to high stakes situation, there's always a good reason and a real reason. So, and you can, and it's hard to argue with the good reason. So, for instance, if you say if your daughter says to you, 
hey, I'm going to the library and let's say it's late at night or whatever. And you you say, why? She, she could say, oh, well, I'm going to study in the library. So that's a good reason. I can't argue with that. The real reason might be there might be a lot of boys hanging out of the library. Exactly. So, so the five whys is designed to get to the real reason <laughs> through the good reason, you know? And, um, it, you know, in the, the Kanako example is like the Challenger explosion that we talk about where it's like the, the good reason was like this O-ring broke, but the real reason was a management failure that, you know, they allowed to, to put the shuttle up, I won't go the full story, but in a cold weather, which they had never tested before. Right. And, and so like you can do this in the, po in the post-mortems and even to yourself, you can figure out your own motivations, but just keep asking yourself why and try to get to the root cause of things. Yeah, and uh, Richard Feynman being the, the famous, you know, Nobel Prize winning physicist who kind of got to the actual cause, the, the root cause of the problem in that situation and... Uh, it was a, it was a uh, and you you described that case study in the book, which is a fascinating. Well, case it study. reminds me. It, that's why it reminded me of your real reason comment because oftentimes the real reason for physical things going wrong is actually a person reason. You know, it's like th this physical thing broke on the space shuttle, but the real reason was because you know engineering said we shouldn't launch it, and management said no, go ahead and launch it because we told the press we're going to launch it. And I think in this case too, there might be kind of a mental model which says. Uh, you know, track the money <laughs> because yeah. the, the the management era had to do with, you know, big companies afraid of losing contracts and-, and, and Looking dumb deadlines. in front of Congress and all these different things. Yeah. yeah. Um, let me see if I can find like one more and then we'll have time for <laughs> a couple of, uh, okay, you talk about the gateway drug theory, deliberate practice. Oh, I was going to ask you about Dunbar's number, which is the number. Uh, so Dunbar's number is this number 150, which is sort of the- uh, theoretically, the upper limit of people you can possibly know. So in an organization, for instance, you have to start uh, kind of making more hierarchical the if you get if you have five hundred people, you have to have managers of groups of one hundred and fifty and then managers below that, and so on. So this is when you have to start making more hierarchy or more levels in, in an organization. But I'm curious in a social context, everybody's got five thousand Facebook friends. What does that really mean societally when when we have five thousand Facebook friends, but our Dunbar number is 150. I think it means that you don't know them very well <laughs> and you don't really know what they're doing at all the time. Um, there, I, I like Dunbar number as also a metaphor of other breakpoints, you know? And so maybe there's some other breakpoint in social media land of like, maybe you can keep really acquaintance ties on a thousand people and it breaks down after that. I don't know if that's been studied, but on the low end, you know, when you start an organization, um, there's a break point just about five or 10 people. Like when you start something at the beginning, everybody is involved in like every decision and they know everything and everyone feels part of everything because you sit around a table like this and talk about everything. But then when you start to get about five or 10 people, you can't do that anymore. There's like too much going on and people have to start to specialize and it causes all sorts of problems. Um, all these break points, like effectively, you have to add process. Um, and there's another one at around um, 15 to 20 people, another one around 50 people where like you have to start adding these like departments or processes to talk to each other more effectively. I wonder if it also applies to things like, let's say you read 500 books last year, maybe you're only gonna really remember things from 150 of them. Yeah, I mean, I I think it's related to, I mean, they're both related to the same thing is that you have a limited capacity to have like, I don't know what the right memory term would be, but like this kind of front-ended memory for people and things. It's kind of like the availability bias we started with, you know, it's like, 
you can only load so much into the beginning of your mind. Right. Like I, if people ask me like, oh, who's the best podcast you ever had, which is a common question. Uh, I can only really think of who's, I can't even remember who's been on more than a month ago. This happens to me all the time. And I feel really bad about it because I get emailed by tons of people and I meet, end up meeting random, tons of random people and someone will, I'll meet somebody and I'll just will not remember them. You know, yeah. that I met five years and they'll be like, we met at some thing five years ago. Oh, I literally have no memory of it. This is, this is awful. I'm glad you said that. I thought I was starting to have early stage Alzheimer's because this even happened to us the other day. We're leaving a movie theater and some guy comes up to me, oh, James, well, good to see you. I have no clue who he was. He's having a whole conversation with me and I didn't want to say, it felt rude to say, I don't know you at all. And, um, but uh, I think we covered maybe 10% of the mental models. I, and again, there was probably about 100 in my notes at least that I wanted to talk about, but maybe maybe another time. But I really encourage people to, to get this book, study these models. I would almost like suggest writing down the mental models that you think apply to you and just, just handwriting it like what they mean because that'll help you remember it. And these are, are really important. I think they are really good shortcuts in, in thinking. Uh, I, do you have time for a few questions about DuckDuckGo? Sure, go for it. So DuckDuckGo, your search engine, competes with Google, uh, doesn't track user data at all as opposed to Google. Now, I am both a user of search engines and an advertiser on search engines. So with Google, it, it helps when someone types in car insurance, if I'm Pretending, pretend I'm a car insurance company, it helps me to know a little bit more demographically about who the person is who typed that in. Google provides that for me so I'm able to get potentially better results, although it might cost me more. Uh, so how does that break down with your business model? You're, you're not going to give the advertiser, if everything else is equal, like if cost is equal, you're not going to be able to give the advertiser a better result than Google could potentially give. There is a, yeah, so there's this difference between contextual advertising and behavioral advertising. So contextual, just based on the page you're on. And so in this case, the search you typed in. And um, it could be your location too, because we can also do that without tracking you. Um, and then behavioral is stuff about you as a person, like demographic information. Um, it's interesting you mentioned that. The vast, you know, maybe it'll be a trend, but the vast majority of Google's search engine money is still just purely contextual, just people bidding on keywords without those demographics. I think that's true because, um, pieces. because smaller organizations or individuals just advertise contextually on Google. So that's probably, in terms of numbers, that's probably the bulk of their advertisers. But large organizations, like let's say Microsoft is advertising on Google, they'll do more behavioral. Well, I so I think the behavioral is mainly used for stuff like on YouTube and other non-search engine. And the reason is is because the intent is so good on the search engine. Like, I'm not sure what you're advertising, but uh, say it's car insurance. Um, generally, those things are so profitable that you want to like maximize your the, the inventory you can get from it. And so you don't necessarily care. You, you might mm. tweak the message behaviorally. Maybe that would be the, the only reason to do it. But you wouldn't filter out almost non-demographic unless it really didn't apply because they're just so they would be profitable under any demographic. It's like because people are typing in that thing that they want to buy. Right. Although let's say you're like um, let's say you're a conservative kind of car insurance company and you know that uh, somebody who's ex-military is a, a better bet for insurance than 
you know, someone else, some other demographic, you might want to, you might want to have some behavioral targeting there. In which case, what do you tell that advertiser? We tell them that we just don't do that. We don't do it. And, and so are you, are, is it then cheaper for the advertiser to advertise on DuckDuckGo? It generally is. So there, there's, um, there's really only two ad feeds, search ad feeds in general on the internet. There's Google, so then there's kind of the second one, which being Yahoo, DuckDuckGo, AOL, kind of all the other search mm-hmm. engines that you might have heard of uh, use. And um, so advertisers can go on there and do it. Because there's less volume and advertisers there, it's generally a bit cheaper. To, to advertise on DuckDuckGo to begin with, which is why it's a good opportunity. And, and which is why... Even because well, the intent is still there perfectly, and so it's just cheaper for you. Yeah, and I, and I think, you know, this is sort of an arbitrage of value versus cost. So it, ultimately, uh, an advertiser cares about return on investment as opposed to the exact specifics about how they're getting that return on investment. So if it's cheaper, but you're not getting the behavioral targeting... It all kind of works out to yeah, the same exactly. or better for for all you know. Yeah, and in general, I think on search ads, like people would just love more inventory because their the intent is just so high. Do you offer uh, advertisers any kind of uh, like AI type of recommendation? So people who search on car insurance tend to also search on uh, white T-shirts or whatever, some so they can buy cheaper words. Not currently. I mean, we we really don't run the ad platform ourselves because if you think about it there's a large network effect in search ads because um, just use more mental models is because they're 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 on an auction basis so when you're competing for the search ads um, if you're by yourself you get really cheap prices because you're the only one bidding for it and the only way the search engines make more money is if there's more people bidding so as a result if you're running a search ad network by yourself and you don't have a lot of volume and you attract advertisers the search space is infinite like there's infinite keywords and so everyone's getting cheap advertising and you're not making a lot of money. So there's a strong incentive for search ad networks to merge. And that's why you see only two at the moment. I see. So, so you're, uh, by, what is a search ad network a real thing like that you outsource your... Yeah, so like they're literally you go to Bing Ad Center and you uh, add your keywords, which you may already do on Bing, and that'll automatically go to Yahoo and DuckDuckGo and AOL. I see. So, so people go. You direct people to Bing. They advertise, and then it's uh, distributed on DuckDuckGo and other places. Exactly. We do some other stuff, like we do our own product ads, um, like using Amazon and eBay. Um, and those ones, we actually they're they're not direct advertisers. We're just if if people click through and buy that thing, we make a little commission. So now, right. So 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 the other half of your business model is using affiliates. Yeah. Uh, I imagine Amazon. So if someone searches on. Um, I don't know, bathroom supplies, and the first link takes them to Amazon, and they click on that link and and buy a roll of toilet paper and a computer, you get the affil- affiliate fee on the computer and, and everything they buy from that link. Yeah, exactly. So, so, I would, uh, I, so two questions. Does that bias your results at all so that you kind of push up uh, uh, the companies you're affiliated with, that you have affiliate deals with? No, and in in particular, these Amazon ads they're separated at the top and they're marked ad. Um, okay, so so the ones you have an affiliate deal with, it's kind of uh, marked or identified. Yeah, the Amazon ones are certainly eBay is just is just in the results, but we don't change them at all. We just make the add the tag to the affiliate. So, is there a risk to the business that I, I imagine the top two or three 
affiliates make up a big chunk of the affiliate revenue business. You might have thousands of affiliates, but probably two, Amazon and eBay. Yeah, no, in fact, it's actually it's actually only those two because those are the only two we can do anonymously because they're the only two that run their own affiliate program. And so as a result, affiliate actually doesn't make up that much of our revenue because we can't actually work with them. I see. So so it's not like, is it a risk to your business if Amazon says, ah, we're not going to do this with you anymore. People people find us anyway. Not a big, not a big risk. Yeah. But in this case, because they're ads and they're they're kind of search ads that you're putting on top, we're we're incrementally positive to Amazon. So I don't necessarily think there's a risk to that. I I, I see. So so Amazon's almost treated as an advertiser, but they don't have to pay any money. Because I remember when Bitly tried to do this. Right. They're paying money on the on the back end to us. Right. Via the affiliate fees. Because I remember when Bitly tried to do this, like a lot of people would shorten Amazon links using Bitly, but Bitly couldn't get. Amazon said no way. To Bitly about uh, getting affiliate fees because I guess right. Well, I think Amazon it's in their policy you can't put links on organic search results, so you couldn't put we couldn't add the tag to the regular search results because they have the same notion that you're talking about that they were going to get that anyway. You know, right? So, uh, well, what's next for DuckDuckGo? Like you're growing, you've you've probably been you 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 just got an investment a few months ago or eight months ago. Uh, What's what's the final? What's going to be the final exit? Are you going to sell? Or are you going to IPO? Um, well, it's been going on for what two thousand eight? What is it? What year is it? Eleven years later. So there's no there's no rush to do anything. Uh, like we've been profitable since two thousand fourteen. Um, we've been taking so we have a wider vision. We uh, our vision is raise the standard of trust online, and we've been trying to operate on that wider vision the last couple of years. So as I mentioned, we've been doing more than search, and our tagline for these kind of products are privacy simplified. And so over the last two years with Cambridge Analytica and everything, like people are way more aware of privacy harms and trying to um, escape them as much as they can. Do, do you see making like a social network that has privacy baked in? I think social network is difficult uh, for these network effect reasons we were talking about earlier. Um, what, what if what if, there, what if a social network was built on top of like blockchain where people were uh, very aware then when privacy was kind of leaving their... They're blocked. Oh yeah, no. I think the user experience theoretically could be could be great. I think the the problem has been how do you get enough people to get on it initially to be useful to people? Yeah, you know, pull people away from from Facebook. But there are other areas. So we you know we make these browser extensions and apps that help you search and browse. But we're looking at you know other other ways to simplify privacy for people. And uh, I want just the final things, John or anybody. Do you have any? Uh, I know you had some a privacy question or, or two. I have one question that was about. I just wanted to hear your opinion on the recent developments concerning Google, for example, changing search results in order to push. And this is, I mean, a lot of people categorize this as a conspiracy, but and they've been accused of this in Congress. Uh, what have they been of, doing? They've been of, changing. Yeah, changing search results to hide, say, people that were. Talking about right-wing politics or just suppressing discussion about politics to further an agenda. So I have no inside knowledge. Um, my I'm skeptical that that level of bias is going on, just because just knowing how a search engine works, um, it would be difficult for me to see that happen. But it's possible. But I, I'm skeptical. But there's a second level of bias that we've actually studied. Called the filter bubble effect, um, which was actually another meta model um, that we wrote about. Which is, if your searches are tailored to you in particular, 
it can cause you a distorted view of reality because you're not seeing everything everyone else is. And you know, if you're like say very Democrat or Republican leaning, you're not seeing the opposite side. And that can cause just increased polarization over time. And so we did a bunch of studies on this. And most recently we found that um, uh, we did, ran this, first we ran in 2012, then we ran it again last year. And we found a lot of variation. And people don't expect that variation because they expect you to see the same results as everybody else. Um, so that could be why uh, the conspiracy idea gets goes goes viral. That oh, uh, you know, I'm not being allowed to. I'm on this other computer and I'm not being allowed. Yeah, to see. exactly. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So that that could be one answer for that. Another thing that popped out from it, which I thought was really interesting, is um, we saw that the primary effect is location driven, and so. Um, it, I don't know the granularity of the location, but let's suppose that it's like by zip code and like the results are changing um, because everyone in this zip code is clicking on this more than other things. That can really relate to a distorted like electoral polarization because now everyone in this district who already leans Democrat or Republican is just seeing more Democrat Republican stuff in aggregate in that voting district. So, so you, but DuckDuckGo, although you don't track uh, any... Uh, personal data, you do some sort of geo-targeting using the IP address. So you know, you you're, you probably are uh, subject to the same bias as well. So this is the distinction in, in this bias that's key is if you're searching for like local weather or restaurants or something that is local, um, it makes sense to, to show something locally specific. If you're searching for non-local results like gun control, you know, a politician's name or something, um, it doesn't make sense, and people don't expect it, and we don't we don't do that. So in that sense, even though people could say uh, pros and cons, Google versus DuckDuckGo, Google has a, a wider number of pages cataloged, uh, whatever. Uh, in this sense, your results are somehow purer because they're not um, biased by the political opinions of your zip code, for instance. Yeah, they have much less a distorted effect because of this type of bias. Um, which would be called a filter bubble bias. More more questions? Um, so I also know that you have a tour service that you're running. So can you explain why you guys decided to, to do that? Yeah, so tour is a program that helps you stay even more anonymous in your entire browsing online. And it kind of works like, like in the movies where you see people ping things through like five countries. It works like that, except it's three hops. Mm -hmm. um, and so you can go on that, and it's a browser. It's actually, a, it looks like Firefox. Um, and then, you know, you're basically completely anonymous. Um, we're the default search engine in Tor. Um, and we have it for a while. And we have something called a hidden service, which is it's like a web address that only works in Tor. Um, and this is just a way for people who want to be super private, even from governments, to be able to kind of search and browse online. So, so um, just to bring up the obvious, if someone's trying to buy drugs, um, they well, would the want Silk Road was it was you know that famous site that um, got taken down was on tour. So, so a could the government ever come to you and say, hey, you're facilitating um, you know people buying illegal stuff, and 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 b. Um, uh, so not really. I mean, because we don't we don't really index those sites. So it's like you're on tour, you you're gonna kind of go to that dark thing directly if you, that's what you were gonna do. So so and because you're not tracking, does the government ever come to you and request 
like, hey, we need information about this IP address. What have they been using Tor for, your, your specific Tor for? We've made it clear that we don't have that information, and, and so we made that clear early on, and no one really comes to us anymore. Did they used to? Did like the government used to? We've had requests in the past, but yeah, but basically we say we don't have any information. How often do you think Google is complicit with the government in terms of tracking down specific people? They have a transparency report, and it's on the order of 200,000 uh, accounts a year. It's, mm. it's pretty high, and it's been growing almost exponentially as basically law enforcement has had uh, easier, they kind of get best practices of how to talk to Google. So at first it was just like, you know, the federal government, and now all sorts of local law enforcement are going to Google all the time to get things. So indirectly, this is a way for Google to lobby governments without paying for lobbyists, right? Because if the governments are benefiting from these requests to Google, could it, could, do you ever get nervous that Google's increasing? The, the fact that the number of requests are increasing also goes the other way. The influence Google has on government is probably increasing. Do you ever get nervous as a business uh, because of that? Not super nervous, just because... Um, you know, we're not, I don't think we're in a situation we're going to be regulated against, especially in this climate. Um, but Google is one of the top lobbyists. Just even, you're kind of kind of talking about soft power, but even just hard lobbying dollars, right. they've been the, the biggest company lobbying in the past two years. And so, and, and it's actually in Google's interest to keep you alive. Yeah, right. Because exactly. they, they can that, say, there's a, if you don't like us, go over here. Yeah, that's why I'm not terribly worried. So they gave you duck.com. Yeah, my guess is that was a. I, you, I know you said it was private. My guess is that was a pretty good deal because they probably want you to to. They don't. They don't care that you're one percent or even one and a half percent. They want you to exist just so they can point to you. I think it's good to have competition in the search market for everybody. Yeah. All right. Well, Gabriel Weinberg. Uh, author, I first want to mention also your book Traction is excellent for any business that is looking for essentially. 78 different ideas for or more almost 100 different ways to to grow your business and but I so much enjoyed this book super thinking the big book of mental models usually after I'm done with the podcast with the person the book goes on the bookshelf I rarely look at it again this is a book I'm going to keep out and, and look at it pretty pretty regularly so it's again it's super thinking the big book of mental models by Gabriel Weinberg and Lauren McCann Thanks so much. Once is this your third time on the podcast? This is your third time on the so. podcast. Yeah. yeah, one time was on when I was still doing Skype. It was like 2014. Then it was like two years later and uh, about whenever Traction came out in like paperback or whatever. And now this. So welcome back. Thank you again. Thanks. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools.